Church, we will be this morning together in the book of 1 Samuel again. So if you would, you could turn with me there to 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, in those blue Bibles, we'll be on page 129, page 129. Last Sunday, we began our six-month journey through the wonderful little book of 1 Samuel. We saw that in the beginning of God's work to bring a king to the earth started not in the soaring heights of the academy, nor in the halls of power among the wealthy elite. No, the genesis of God's plan was bound up in the cries of a barren woman in a polygamist home with a bickering co-wife. Hannah, as we learned, went to God in broken-hearted prayer and asked Him for a son. And in the final verse we read last week, God answered her prayer, and Samuel was born. Today, we'll pick up the story with the infant Samuel now at home. It turns out, if you'll remember, that Hannah not only asked God for a son, she also made a promise. She said, essentially, God, if you'll give me a son, then I promise to give him back to you for special service in the temple. In the language of the Old Testament, Hannah made a vow. Now, in her praying for a child, She didn't have to make a vow, but she chose to. And what moves the story along today is the question of will she keep her promise? It's one thing to promise God something in a moment of pain. It's quite another to follow through with it when life's going well. Have you found that to be the case? God, if you would just... is often much more difficult once that prayer is answered. Now that her prayer is answered, would Hannah still have need for God? Would she maintain her commitment? Or as is so often the case, would her son become what's most important to her? And on top of parting with her son, would she give costly sacrifices and offerings to God at the temple? These are the questions that drive our text this morning forward. Our passage will answer these. It'll answer these through describing Hannah's gifts and through disclosing Hannah's prayer. So this morning, let's consider both. First, Hannah's gifts, as Robert Benz comes to read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 1, 21 to 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you give, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, 
that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Thank you. Every Thursday, our church staff and anyone else who's around and wants to sit in gets together to study the text we're going to be looking at the following Sunday morning. And we were discussing a few days ago uh, on Thursday how narrative is driven by a conflict. And so I asked, where's the conflict in this story? And one of our smart mouth staff members said, the bull feels a lot of conflict. Really, what's moving the conflict in this text is the question of will Hannah fulfill her vow? In chapter 21, we find, in verse 21, we find Elkanah headed back from his hometown to Shiloh to worship at the temple again. But this time, Hannah doesn't go with him. Of course, practically speaking, we get that. Anyone who's had an infant knows what it's like to travel with an infant. It's amazing how a a creature 18 inches long can require everything you own to be traveled. But we're left to wonder because Hannah doesn't go. Will she go later? Will she keep her vow? Will she follow through on what she's promised in verse 22? to take Samuel once he's weaned? Certainly the question is understandable. And yet by verse 24, the answer is clear. Hannah will, in fact, keep her promise to God. Now, I hope you'll let that fall on you heavily. This is a woman who had long, for years and years and years, prayed and cried for a child. And then finally, God has answered that prayer. And yet the Lord, as He always does, expects us to keep our promises. And Hannah did. For Hannah, God was first. Her perspective seems to be, we can assume, that everything and everyone is under God's sovereign care. And everything is His anyway. And so, Me giving back to God what God has given to me is not too much to ask. And in so thinking, she could part with money, possessions, and even her son without her identity being crushed or her contentment being stolen. Friends, is there anything that you have or anyone you're related to that if they were gone, you would no longer know who you are Hannah is a tremendous example to us of humble, courageous faithfulness to God. Hannah knew who she was because she knew who God is. Friends, if you promise God something, God expects you in gratitude-rooted joy to keep your promise. The easiest example we can think of is a wedding vow. Just like Hannah didn't have to make a vow in her asking for a baby. You didn't have to get married. Brother, sister, if you are married, if you have pledged yourself under God to another, then the Lord expects you to keep that vow. Now let's think 
this morning in particular about Hannah's gifts. Verse 24 says she brought Samuel as a gift. And then it gets even weirder. It says she brought a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and skin of wine. Now to us, this is incredibly weird, is it not? My guess is no one came to church this morning expecting to give up your child, although you might like to, let alone to give a bull. Usually if we say somebody's given a lot of bull, that's not what we mean. A lot of flour and wine. So there's some cultural background here we need to fill in in order for us to hear what's being said. In the Old Testament, there are many scriptures that command the people of God to go to the temple of God with sacrifices and offerings. There were certain times of the year you would do this to commemorate certain events of God in the past. And there were also occasions personally where you were to go and make sacrifices after some particular sin or after you received something especially great from God. One of those passages that instructs Hannah in that way was Deuteronomy chapter 12. It'll be on the screens behind me. It says, there you shall go, meaning to the temple. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings. That's explicitly why Hannah went. Your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you partake in, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So that's why Hannah went. Hannah was a woman who was faithful to her word, and she was faithful to the word of God. You'll notice immediately as we read that Deuteronomy text that financial giving is fundamentally about worship. Today, we're no longer required to go to the temple or to offer sacrifices or to bring flour or wine or our pets. But when we give to our church, just like when Hannah gave to the temple, most fundamentally those gifts are not about keeping the lights on. They're about worshiping the giver. The birth of a child is certainly an occasion for worshiping God. And so Hannah came to Shiloh. And then she gave all that God gave her. Now one thing that may not be readily obvious to you is that Hannah's offerings were extravagant. For a family from a rural town to give a bull was a big deal. And the amount of flour and wine she gave were proportional only to a very, very, very large sacrificial gift. Hannah gave generously and sacrificially. Like the widow we looked at a few weeks ago that gave all she had, Hannah gave far more than was expected. Let's pray that we would be a church that gives like Hannah, not out of duty, but out of an overflowing appreciation of joy in the gospel. So these are the gifts that Hannah brought, including Samuel. And there she left him. Hannah's conversation with Eli in verses 26 through 29 is especially moving. Do you think back to 
the last time she'd been at Shiloh. She was being mocked, ridiculed, belittled, and in desperation, she went and prayed. And Eli, who should have known and joined her in that intercession, instead accused her of drunkenness. The last time she saw Eli, she was childless and heartbroken. But this time, she's back. Things are completely different. Hannah came back to give back what God first gave to her. And that's certainly true of all of our giving. So Hannah fulfilled her vow. She fulfilled her vow in joy. Now, if you look on to the next section of our text, chapter 2, 1 through 11, we'll find that Hannah's last prayer was a tragic situation, but this prayer is a prayer of triumph. Do you follow along with me in your Bible? It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by my might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy, that's Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. We obviously can't exhaust this vast prayer, but hopefully in our few remaining minutes we can get a sense of it. Now we started by looking at Hannah's gifts, and her gifts are hard enough to grasp. The amount of money she spent, and the fact that she parted with her child. It's hard to get our brains around. But then to come to this prayer is even more perplexing. Doesn't this seem like a weird, I have a baby prayer? Isn't it a bit disproportional? I mean, one woman from one little town had one little baby. Big deal. Now, we're very accustomed today to everyone thinking their kid is the best. 
We are the everyone gets a trophy kind of parents. But Hannah, she seems a bit overly optimistic, doesn't she? I mean, honestly, doesn't this prayer seem bizarre? There are, though, little clues sprinkled throughout the prayer that help us to see why Hannah praised God in this way. I hope we can sniff a few of them out together. Notice, first of all, that the prayer starts in the singular. She says, my heart exalts, my mouth derides. It's incredibly personal language. Hannah is describing her own experience. But then verses 2 to 10 are not mainly personal. In fact, they're seemingly not personal at all. They're communal. We might even say rightly that they're cosmic in scope. So from just carefully looking at the pronoun movement from my to our, we see that what God did with Hannah and Samuel is in some way in Hannah's mind connected to God's plan to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is why she starts small and ends huge. God's gift of Samuel to Hannah in some way points forward to God's gift of salvation to humanity. We see that because she starts me and my and then does not end at all in that way, but with our. This is our first clue. Now there's another that we'll notice very early on. If you look at the second half of verse 1, you see the word horn. Or if you're using uh, one of the translations like NIV or New Living, some of those translations will translate the word strength to try and get at what the horn represents. And if you look down at verse 10, the end, it also uses the same word, horn. So quite literally, horns form bookends to Hannah's prayer of praise. Now, friends, when we read the Bible, what is so easy to do is to skim it, looking for some, quote, fresh word for today. And in so doing, we cause ourselves to miss the things that are not readily culturally seen by us. And therefore, it's like unplugging the TV from the power source. You might have a great-looking TV, but if it's not plugged in, you're not going to see anything. And when we slow down and look more carefully, then we find incredibly moving imagery in the Scriptures. This is one of those places. Have you been to the zoo and seen the rhinos? Those horns are huge, aren't they? Now, here's the way the picture is designed to show us meaning. An animal's horn is symbolic of strength and power because its horn is used for protection. It's common in literature to reflect an animal's glory and its strength by its horn. Now, for an animal's horn to be lifted up or exalted means that horn is not lowered in battle. 
but rather it is upright, head up, standing in victory. Having accomplished what it needed to in power, it now stands in peace. It is victorious in strength. That's the imagery Hannah's calling on. So do you hear what she's saying now? My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. She's saying God has given me victory. What seemed like an unconquerable power has lost. God has won. That's what she's saying in the first verse. But then if we remember the shift from personal to cosmic, listen to verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Friends, this is the first explicit reference to the anointing of the Messiah in the entire Bible. And it comes from the lips of Hannah. Hannah used the Hebrew word for Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christos. And if you know your Bible at all, then your brain is starting to explode. Because Christos in Greek is Christ. In English, what started as a personal prayer of praise ended with a prophetic announcement of the coming king. Hannah was likely here praising God for far more than she fully understood. As Hannah thought about what God did for her and what God intended to do for all his people, She ended up by declaring God to be the king of the whole world and that God would be raising up this king. A king who would be mighty, who would have strength in battle, who would stand victoriously with his horn lifted high, even over death itself. Brothers and sisters, Hannah was overwhelmed with the God who creates, who's sovereign over all, who acts for the good of his people. And in the final analysis, this prayer is not about Hannah, nor is it about Samuel, nor is it about you and me. It's about God. Nine times in this short prayer, Hannah explicitly calls on the name of the Lord. She's drenched in a God-saturated understanding of life. Everywhere she looked, she saw God. And in particular, did you notice that she's most especially impacted by God's incomparable holiness and sovereignty? So often if we think about God today, we know of nothing to think other than love. But so often in the prayers of the Bible, when people thought about who God is and they responded to Him in praise, The aspect of God's character that was so overwhelming was the holiness, the purity, the separateness of God. Verse 2 puts it so well, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Friend, as you pray to God, does your prayer ever include that kind of thinking? Because our God is 
incomparable, unsurpassed, unmatched, supreme, unrivaled, and without equal. He is a God, yes, of infinite love, but also of perfect holiness, intrinsic goodness, flawless justice, incomprehensible power. When we get a glimpse of a God like that, verse 3 is the natural result. All arrogant speech must stop. All self-dependency must fade. All sinners must repent or face His judgment. Why? Because this king's horn is lifted up. Now, one more little clue that Hannah's left us is that most of this prayer is articulating the same thing in lots of different ways. And what it's articulating is the fact that God works through shocking reversals. Did you know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs in the Old Testament, all of them had barren wives. All of them, God intervened in miraculous ways. Anna is one more in a string of shocking reversals. This is how God works. God's specialty is upending the norms. We might put it this way. God has a PhD in bringing about his plans through the most unexpected people in the most unexpected places in the most unexpected ways. While Hannah's story is definitely unusual, It is representative of how God normally operates. God is accomplishing His cosmic plan of salvation, brothers and sisters, precisely through means we'd least expect. He brings down the prideful and raises up the humble. He upends those self-satisfied in arrogance and fills those who are genuinely hungry with His blessings. And brothers and sisters, in your own life, this is where you will see God the most clearly, is in these areas where God has upended, where there has been a reversal. And so often those come in hard circumstances. Friends, when we're equipped with an awareness of and a trust in the God who knows and acts for His people through shocking reversals, then human power on the one hand and human weakness on the other look completely different. Hannah's telling us that God brings low what we look at and see as strength. And God lifts up. what we see as weakness. Have you seen that in your own story? This is what God does. One of the great benefits we'll have together the next several months as we work our way through this book is we will see this pattern again and again and again. The holy and sovereign God 
intervenes on behalf of his broken people in shocking reversal. And Hannah's cry to us is that we would give him all allegiance, all praise, and all trust for what she saw prophetically we look back at, at the cross. Jesus rose again. His horn is lifted high. To Hannah was providentially given the joy of introducing First and Second Samuel. If you go to a gospel community in the next several days, as you're working through discussion questions, what, one of the things you'll hear is that in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel are not two books. They're one book. And in that way, Hannah introduces the whole entire era of Israel as a monarchy. And even more than that, she introduces the unending eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Now, very likely, she didn't fully comprehend this. But she did have a sense that God's blessings to her were never meant to be dead ends. What God gives us personally is always designed to be part of what God's doing for His church. Hannah's victory over childlessness was intended to encourage Israel to seek victory over an even greater hardship. I want to say this carefully and sensitively, but it needs to be said. Friends, what are these first two chapters about? What is the meaning of these texts for us today? Well, friends, 1 Samuel is not designed to say, barren mothers, if you pray for babies and make vows, then God will give you the child you want. How many contemporaries did Hannah have who prayed the same prayer but didn't get a child? Read the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 11, to see how despairingly different our paths are as we follow God. We are not promised ease. God may choose to answer that prayer for some, but that's not the lesson of 1 Samuel. No, the story's far bigger even for Hannah and for Samuel. Hannah's gift of a son was God's chosen method to bring about a king for his people. That's what this story is about. Hannah's story is a picture of the story of all God's people in bringing about the redemption in Christ. Maybe we could put it this way. Hannah's experience is a scale model of God's plan to rescue all his people. This Small reversal of childlessness in one family points forward to the ultimate reversal. Dead sinners trusting in Christ and being given new life. That's the way we read the Old Testament. You see, God would grow Samuel into a man who would be used by God to designate the most important king who ever sat on the throne in the Old Testament. His name was David. And David would turn out to be merely a shadow 
of an even greater and far more important king. His name is Jesus. This is what 1 Samuel is all about. The making of the king. Initially Saul and then David. But in the end, as Hannah so eloquently and wonderfully prayed, it was about King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I hope this morning you're already thinking about another woman. Another woman who had no reason to think she would be having a kid. She wasn't barren. She had never been with a man. And yet she too became pregnant. And in her pregnancy, she rejoiced. And she seems to have self-consciously remembered Hannah's prayer and picked up the same themes and prayed her own prayer in celebration. Her name's Mary, and here's her prayer. Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he looked on the humble estate of a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Do you hear that reversal over and over and over? It's God is a gracious God who brings about reversals. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Friends, the families of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elkanah, Joseph and Mary are all designed to tell us That the greatest reversal possible, the reversal of dead sinner to living saint, is offered in Christ. That there are those here today who, hearing my words, are physically alive but are spiritually dead. That you need not stay that way. That there is a God who, just like gave you physical life, can give you spiritual life in Christ. We hope if you are not a Christian today that you will stick around after and ask questions of those who sit around you. Come find one of the elders. Visit with them. Come talk to whoever brought you or someone you know in the room and tell them, I want to know more about Jesus. Or maybe this morning that you already know much And what's needed is to put your trust in Him. If so, then even as I'm finishing talking, yes, I'm almost finished, then you can turn from sin and place your confidence and faith and trust in the Savior 
the one whose strength is without question, whose horn is lifted up, and the greatest of all reversals can be yours. If you're here this morning and you've already trusted Christ, my question for you would be, are you living like your king's horn is lifted high? He has not promised ease. But friend, what matters most is already secured. God will complete the work he started in you. He will finish it. You are his. He will hold you fast. His horn is lifted high. There is no other power anywhere close to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we face this week with our hands and our heads lifted high. For that's where our Savior's horn is. He has all strength. Let's pray.